When you start law school, you might feel like you missed something. It's like beginning a book on page 274. There are all these things that you're just supposed to know, even though no one ever told you. Hello, and welcome to the 7th Age Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, our friend Andrew Woods, a brilliant law professor, tackles one of the most basic questions. What is the law? It's a fantastic lecture, and so without further ado, I give you Professor Woods. Hi, my name is Andrew Woods. I'm a law professor here at the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. And this is a talk I like to give to one else at the start of their legal education. So before you study law, it might make sense to ask, what is it? That's the aim for today's talk. But before we go any further, I have to start like a good lawyer with a disclaimer. This is just an absurdly large topic. And I want to acknowledge at the outset that we might construct several equally compelling definitions of the law. I'm going to give you one of them. Actually, I'm not even going to give you a definition at all. I just want to talk about some of the essential building blocks, essential components of any good definition of the law. So this is just one of many definitions, and I don't mean to suggest this is the only way to think of the law. To the contrary, there are lots of other ways of thinking about it that are equally compelling. In fact, this inquiry is so broad, we really ought to come up with a way of narrowing it. Well, one way to do that is to ask, what do people study when they study law? Well, law students study statutes and court cases and the Constitution. That's all part of the law. But law students also look at social norms and markets and architecture and technology, because all of these things are crucial to the law in different ways. So one thing to keep in mind at the outset is that the law is actually quite a broad category of things, much broader than might be written down in a book of statutes called the laws of the United States. Those statutes are, of course, law, but they are not a complete answer to the question, what is law? We can see this more clearly when we ask, what do people do when they do the law? What does it mean to be a lawyer or a good lawyer? Well, if I'm writing a letter of recommendation on behalf of one of my students, and I say, so-and-so will be an exceptional lawyer, I don't really mean to refer to any one aspect of the law in particular. I'm not saying that that student is an expert in court cases or an expert in social norms, but instead I'm suggesting they'll be an expert in a practice, lawyering. And that is a practice that is marked by several key features. So this is how I propose that we think about the law. For today, as we try to get a handle on what the law is, let's talk about those essential features of the practice of the law. And I propose that there are four. Rules, community, interpretation, and enforcement. Putting these together, we can say, law is a set of rules by and for a community that will be interpreted and enforced. First, and most obviously, law is a system of rules, of obligations, restrictions, rights, empowerments. That is to say, law is a set of rules to guide conduct. Law students spend a lot of time thinking about rules, and the luckiest among them may even spend the rest of their lives talking about rules. Rules are cool because they come in all sorts of flavors. For example, rules can be specific, but they can also be vague. Take traffic rules. A specific traffic rule might say, drive no faster than 65 miles an hour. A vague version of a traffic rule is something like, drive safely. 
Or think about the Constitution, which has both specific and vague rules. Specific, the president must be older than 35. Vague, the president must be fit for office. We find specific and vague rules in contracts, too, a class that I teach. Specific, contracts for the sale of land must be written down. Vague, contract terms must not be unconscionable. This distinction between specific obligations and vaguer, more flexible obligations is often called rules versus standards. That is to say, there are bright line rules, which are rather binary and specific, and then there are vaguer, more flexible standards. How do you tell the difference between the two? Well, here's one test. I used to say that if a robot can determine if the obligation was violated, then it's a rule, and if not, it's a standard. For example, a robot can tell if you're driving 65 miles an hour, but it can't tell if you're driving safely. Of course, that test is still true today for the most part, but it won't be true for long. Talk to engineers working on artificial intelligence systems, and they'll tell you standards aren't so hard anymore. You just have to break them down into many different rules. So instead of asking, is the car driving safely? The robot might ask, is the car swerving? Are the lights on? And so on. Or using a machine learning algorithm, the robot might be trained on thousands or millions of examples of safe driving behavior as distinguished from not safe driving behavior, and might just be expert at recognizing a pattern when it sees one. I don't want you to think that there is a hard and fast line between rules and standards, but it's a distinction you should understand, and it's a distinction that law students encounter in every class. Now, you'll note that rule makers, the people who create new legal obligations, have a choice when they craft those obligations about how specific to be. There are trade-offs associated with each. For example, which one is easier to enforce? Well, specific rules are easier to enforce because the more specific a rule is, the easier it is to identify a violation of the rule. You were either going 65 miles an hour or you weren't. The contract was either written down or it wasn't. Vague standards, on the other hand, invite contestation. Were you driving safely? What does it mean to drive safely? The upshot with rules, specific rules, is that they're easier to enforce as compared to vague obligations, those vaguer standards. So why don't we always adopt specific rules if they're easier to enforce? Because the more specific the rule is, the harder it is to get people to agree on the right rule. And vague standards, by contrast, are often easier to agree upon. We can test this. I'm guessing that most of you listening to this agree with the vague standard that drivers should drive safely. I mean, truly, who disagrees with that, right? All drivers should drive safely. But how many of you agree that the speed limit should be 65? or 75, or 85. You might think it's one of them, but I'm guessing all of you don't think it's the same number. So we sometimes opt for more flexible standards that everyone can agree to, like drive safely or perform reasonably. When you see these words, just note for yourself that there will be a fight later about enforcement. The rule maker, which might be the legislature crafting a law, or the drafter of Facebook's community standards, has kicked the can down the road. When they adopt a vague standard, they say, okay, look, we can all agree on this. It's the goal we all generally want to see, but there will be a fight later about the specifics of enforcement. So specific rules, harder to pass, easier to enforce. Vague standards, easier to pass, 
harder to enforce. There is so much more to say about different kinds of rules, like the distinction between primary rules, rules that govern conduct, and secondary rules, the rules that govern the making of primary rules, but I want to hold off on that for now. For now, it's enough just to note that law is a system of rules, and that alone makes it worthy of your study. These are not rules in a vacuum. These are rules tied to a particular community. And I should pause here for a quick side note because I just said the word vacuum. Even in a vacuum, there are rules. Outer space, which is usually defined in treaties to mean anything north of the Kármán line, is as close as we have to a natural vacuum. Still, that domain is governed by a huge array of rules. I don't mean astrophysical rules, I mean legal rules. There are treaties and national laws that govern that space. Actually, whose rules they are and how far they should apply is the subject of much interest. Back to our discussion of rules and community. I want to say that rules belong to a community. You'll see this when you think about what it means to be a lawyer because a client doesn't just ask what is the rule, but also can the rule be enforced against me? That is, there is always this further question about the fit between the rules we were just discussing and their purchase over a person in a particular place. There is, in other words, a question about jurisdiction. Law students and lawyers spend a lot of time talking about jurisdiction. By the way, we are innately born thinking about jurisdiction. I mean, if you have ever said or heard a child say, you're not the boss of me, then you've heard an argument about jurisdiction. Yes, I may have done some babysitting in my time, and yes, I may have tried unsuccessfully to convince a few toddlers why I had the authority to set their bedtimes. So let's talk about jurisdiction for a sec. The United States Constitution says that the executive cannot be younger than 35 years old. But to whom does that rule apply? Does it apply to the executive branch in Venezuela? No, because that rule is tied to a particular community. And things get more complicated from there because the very idea of a community is complicated. We all belong to several overlapping communities. Some of you belong to a city, a state, a country, perhaps also a tribe. These are distinct but overlapping communities with distinct but overlapping jurisdiction and regulatory authorities. Does the U.S. Constitution's rule about the executive being 35 years old apply to the executive branch in Arizona, the governor? No. What about the executive branch in Tucson, the mayor? No. What about the executive branch of the Hona Odom Nation, the tribal council's chairperson? No. The rule applies to the community as four, and that is to say the United States. Actually, it's more complicated than that because, of course, each of these communities has many distinct sub-communities within it, and they don't always agree on the same things, and they don't always treat each other well. Just imagine, hypothetically speaking, of course, that we lived in a time when the probability of someone from a particular community going to prison in their lifetime was one in three. You might, if you're a member of that community, come to see the criminal justice system as illegitimate. You might, in other words, begin to think that the law is not of or for your community. You might lose respect for it. It might not seem just. And you'll note that the fit between the rule and the community is maybe the place where the idea of justice plays its biggest role. Some rules are just, some rules are unjust, but you can't decide if the law is just without answering the question for whom. 
For example, should it be a crime to say the Holocaust never happened? It isn't a crime here. The First Amendment protects that speech. But it is a crime in Germany where the Holocaust occurred. Should that conduct be criminalized or not? That is a question you must answer by interrogating the link between the rule itself and the community it applies to. At least I think that's the case. Okay, so far we've talked about rules and we've talked about their fit to a community. Now let's talk about interpretation. I'm guessing at some point in the last few minutes you've thought to yourself, wait a minute, who says what fit for office means or drive safely or when is a contract unconscionable? If law is a system of rules, those rules are subject to interpretation, and that makes them the sites of contestation. If you're a nerd like me, this is the really good stuff. The reason that law interests you in the first place. Nerds like me, by the way, that is the title of my autobiography. Nerds like me just eat this stuff up. When someone hires a lawyer, they do not only want to know the rule and where and to whom it applies, they also want to know how it can be interpreted. Does it have gray areas? How flexible are those areas? What have courts said about interpretations X or Y or Z? Interpretation is the good stuff because this is where you get to be creative. It's where we distinguish ourselves from our robot overlords, where we come as close as we'll ever come to using the skills that we developed in a literature seminar while practicing the law. I don't mean that you can go crazy with interpretation, but I do mean that you can and should be creative you'll learn that nearly everything can be interpreted and refined further. Remember when I said the president must be 35 years old and that that was actually a pretty simple rule? Well, says who? I mean, 35 years old, well, what is a year? And according to which calendar? The Gregorian calendar? The Islamic calendar? For those of you who are space buffs, what is a year anyway? Is it 365 days where a day is a full 360 degree rotation of the planet? Or is a year the planet's full rotation around the sun? By the way, which planet are we talking about? Only Earth, or does Mars count too? If an American were born on Mars and they decided they wanted to run for office, how would we calculate that they are 35 years old? Now you might say, oh come on, that's obvious. But it's not written down in the Constitution. And you could imagine a time, really not so far in the future, when this could become a contested issue. Who will decide these questions of interpretation? The answer so often is judges. Judges are tasked with interpreting the law. Let me just say a quick word about that. Some of you, I'm guessing, already have strong views about whether judges should be interpreting rules at all. There's this whole debate about activist judges and who makes the law. You might recall our chief justice who said in his confirmation hearings that judges should just call balls and strikes. This kind of statement is really now a time-honored tradition. It's part of our judicial confirmation theater and an attempt to make something that is deeply political appear less so. Please do not buy it. It is a fiction. It is a myth that judges can simply apply the law in or out, fair play or foul ball. You cannot engage in the practice of law and escape interpretation. If you don't believe me, just try this out on your client one day. Dear client, I'd love to take your case, but judges don't make law, so I will not ask them to interpret the rules in your favor. How does that sound? You would have a very short career as a lawyer. And by the way, Chief Justice Roberts, who was an absolutely amazing lawyer in DC, 
excelled at convincing judges to interpret the law in ways that benefited his clients. He definitely does not believe that judges cannot or do not have wide leeway in interpreting rules. Of course he doesn't. There is no alternative. Systems of law are by definition systems of interpretation, and judges are often asked to play the role of interpreter. Okay, consider an actual case, and you be the judge and tell me how you're going to call balls and strikes here, okay? Here's the case. The cops are pursuing someone they suspect is running drugs. First, they go to the judge and show the judge that they have probable cause, which is what they need to show in order to secure a warrant to then go search the suspect's possessions. In particular, they want to search the suspect's email account. So they get a warrant from a judge, and then they go to Microsoft and ask for the suspect's emails. They go to Microsoft because, let's say, this particular suspect was using a Microsoft email product. Microsoft's general counsel, who, by the way, is a fantastic lawyer, and you'll never guess where she went to law school, go Arizona Wildcats, she discovers by checking the firm's files that the suspect was a European customer. So his emails are stored on Microsoft's Irish servers. And she decides that Microsoft should contest the warrant. She tells the cops that Microsoft is not going to comply and not hand over those Irish stored emails. So the federal government sues. Okay, you're the judge or you're clerking for the judge and you just want to call balls and strikes. Does a warrant issued in the United States apply to Microsoft servers in Ireland? Does the warrant issued in Washington have force over a corporation in Washington? It absolutely does. But does it apply to the corporation's subsidiary in Ireland and their records stored there? Well, yes, it does. There's case law that settles some of those questions. But does it apply to digital customer data stored at a server farm in Ireland? You want to call balls and strikes, right? You don't want to make things up on the bench. So you look up the relevant statute. This warrant happened to have been issued under the Stored Communications Act. So you pull it up and it says nothing about its geographic scope. It just doesn't tell you whether the warrant applies to servers outside of the United States. Many statutes actually say whether they apply abroad or not and with what kinds of limits. For example, maybe they apply abroad, but only to U.S. persons or U.S. corporations. Maybe it just applies to U.S. corporate subsidiaries, what have you. But this statute, it says nothing. So what do you do? Tell me how you resolve this case by just calling balls and strikes and not make law. You have essentially two options. The warrant is either valid or it's not valid, right? Either way, though, you are interpreting the statute and setting precedent. Others will follow your lead going forward. Either way you decide the case, you are picking a winner and picking a loser, and either way you're making law. Poor you, you just wanted to call balls and strikes, and now you're this unelected person in a robe making law. But that's okay because there's really no other way. You can't escape doing this because law is a system of rules that will always require interpretation. This was an actual case argued before the Supreme Court in 2018, and then it was ultimately made moot. That is to say, the debate was made irrelevant by the passage of a statute. The case is Microsoft versus the United States, if you want to look it up. So law is an interpretive subject. We take a text that looks two-dimensional, and we fold it in half and then fold it in half again, and now it's three-dimensional. By the way, your active interpretation of the text will change it. 
Suppose the text said nothing before about its geographic scope. Well, once you go and take it to a judge and ask them to weigh in on the matter, the judge has to interpret the nothingness. And when she does, now the nothingness means something. The text that said nothing about its geographic scope now either applies extraterritorially or it doesn't. But after the judge rules, the text is different than it was before. The interpretation changes the text. I just want to point out, interpretation is one of the key tools of being a lawyer, and you are going to become ninjas at interpreting text. You're going to be crafting law out of nothing, and in a way, you're stepping into the matrix. Okay, I'm mixing my metaphors. We'll call this the ninja matrix. Just, you're about to step into the ninja matrix, which to be honest, sounds like a pretty compelling movie, and it sounds an awful lot like John Wick. Law is a set of rules from and for a particular community, a set of rules that will be subject to competing interpretations. It is also, I think, and this is our last essential element, fundamental that law is a set of rules that are obeyed and enforced. There are penalties for not complying with the law. The body that passes a law doesn't merely state the rule and to whom it applies. They will often also explain how the rule will be enforced. It's worth noting that not all laws are enforced, but law can have a powerful effect on our behavior, and we can obey it even when it is not being enforced because the law can express normative value. I want to pause here and just talk for a moment about the relationship between the enforcement of a rule and our obedience with it. Why do we obey the law? Is it only because there's a penalty? Surely not. When I was in law school, I would often find myself puzzling over this question. It's a little hypothetical that when I was bored in class, which I'm sorry to admit was often, I would stare off into the distance and think about this thought experiment. Suppose you're driving in the desert and you can see in the distance a stop sign right where another road intersects yours. As you approach the stop sign, you look around and you see nobody. Do you stop at the stop sign? If so, why? One instinctive reaction might be to say, I stopped because it's the law. But that just begs the question, what is the law? Why does the law compel you to stop? What does it mean to say that it's the law? So let's go through a few options. Some of you, I suspect, would say, well, I stopped because I didn't want to hit another car. And this reflects the fact that the law is something that helps people coordinate their conduct in a society. If the law is a set of rules, then they're more like the rules of poker or the rules of tennis than they are the rules of solitaire, because they're the rules that imagine a community, and part of their function is to help that community coordinate its activities. For example, it doesn't matter whether the law says cars drive on the right or cars drive on the left, they both work as a set of rules. What matters to the functioning of society is that we are all driving on the same side of the road. Left works, right works, but what doesn't work is for some folks to be driving on the left and some to be driving on the right. Okay, let's return to my stop sign in the desert. Maybe you stop at the stop sign because you are thinking, I don't see any other cars, but this law was designed by someone who thought we needed it to avoid accidents. I'll just stop out of an abundance of caution. And I think that's reasonable enough. Seeing the law as a signal about proper conduct or safe conduct is a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the rule. Some of you will stop at the stop sign and will do so and say, I guess I stopped out of a sense of habit. And this reflects the idea that the law is something to which we can become habituated. 
the law has values behind it, and we might start to follow the law and then sometimes even internalize its values and make them a part of our routine and habits. This is one of the reasons the law can have power over us even when it's not being enforced. Consider an example. There was a time not so long ago when sodomy was illegal in many states. This is and of course was offensive to gay men and their allies, but by the way, it was also offensive to anyone who thought it was none of the state's business to decide what people should do in their bedrooms. One common response to these concerns was to say, well, anti-sodomy laws aren't actually enforced. The law was actually sometimes enforced, as you know if you've read the unbelievable facts of Lawrence versus Texas, the case that ultimately held that anti-sodomy laws were unconstitutional in the United States. But even if these rules are not being enforced, they're still morally repugnant. Symbolically, a rule that says you are not welcome here, even if it's not being enforced, isn't very welcoming. Even if you look past that, it's simply no relief to find out that a morally repugnant law is unenforced because even unenforced laws can have powerful effects over our conduct. There's a fantastic law review article that describes a study that shows the powerful and harmful effects the law can have even when not being enforced in this very specific context. Of course, the lesson is generalizable. The author of the study looked specifically at anti-sodomy laws in South Africa over a period of time when first the anti-sodomy laws were in place, but not enforced, and then later after the laws were eradicated. Now you might think if the law is not being enforced, there should be no difference in people's behavior between time one and time two when the law is abolished. But the author of the study found that the law's existence had a profound effect on people's daily lives, where people were self-policing, self-censoring, backing down in fights with neighbors, reluctant to call the police after a burglary. In a million little ways, the law affected people's lives merely by its existence, both as a kind of implicit threat and as a statement that the state is not on your side, that you are not welcome here. The law has this incredible capacity to reflect values, to signal values, and to become embedded into our cultural consciousness. That's true even when it's not being enforced. Okay, third option. You're pulling up to the desert stop sign. Why do you stop? Some of you will say, I suppose, I didn't stop. I blew right through that stop sign. And I think this reflects the idea that there's a difference between what's written down and what's enforced, right? If you're asked, how fast can you drive on the freeway? Most people will respond kind of oddly, five to 10 above the limit. Think about that sentence for a second. Five or 10 over the limit. Not much of a limit, is it? But everyone recognizes that the law is unlikely to be enforced right at the speed limit, and everyone's in a hurry. Okay, fourth option. Some of you, I think, will stop at the stop sign in the middle of nowhere with no one watching, and you'll say, I stopped because I didn't want to get a ticket, and I suspect the police know where I am somehow, and the car maybe has a tracking device, maybe there's a camera, or my phone is tracking me. And this, I think, reflects the fact that we're entering a phase of our existence when the state's capacity to surveil us is at an all-time high. If you would not have stopped but for the fear that someone is watching somehow, you're not sure how, I think you've just shown how state power and enforcement can shape behavior in powerful ways. Fifth option. Some of you will say, I stopped, but not because I fear the ticket, but because my insurance rates will go up if I don't stop at the stop sign. And this reflects the fact that law rarely has one effect between the regulator and the regulated. 
The law ends up being incorporated into our contracts. Perhaps you had a rental car and the contract said something about following local traffic laws, or you have an insurance contract that says the same. And insurance companies are increasingly giving people little digital devices to track their conduct and make sure they stop at stop signs. Legal instruments like contracts, technology like GPS trackers, can extend the law from one domain to another. So the law gets incorporated into a contract, but also into non-legal instruments. Okay, option number six. I suspect some of you in this desert hypothetical would say, I didn't stop the car, the car stopped itself. I was reading a book. The car stopped because it was programmed to do so. Someone at Tesla or Waymo wrote a piece of code that tells the car to stop at stop signs, and cars do so all over the country as a consequence of that code. This reflects the enormous power of platforms to guide our lives. Tesla changes the rules for self-driving cars, and that has the effect of traffic laws, right? Behavior changes on the streets. And that's true for other platforms like Facebook and Amazon and Twitter. And this just reflects the powerful way in which rules can govern behavior indirectly and directly through large market players. Okay, we now have some of the basic elements of a system of law on the table. We could test this definition against something that might be thought of as a system of law. So consider Facebook's platform rules, the rules the company uses to decide what speech stays up on Facebook and what should be censored. Are those rules law? They at least meet the essential elements that I've outlined here. They are rules. No nudity on Facebook. These rules are interpreted. No nudity except for Botticelli's. These rules belong to a community. They're called community standards after all. And actually content is increasingly geo-blocked so that it only appears in one jurisdiction rather than globally so that the right community gets the right conduct according to that community's rules. And then finally, the rules are enforced. Maybe Facebook's community standards are a kind of law. Now, some people might say you need to have a sovereign state make the law, sovereign power like the state's power, but I think that's a bit restrictive. What about religious laws or Walmart's laws? What about NFL rules? In fact, maybe it runs the other way. Maybe rather than asking, is this body that's making rules a state, a sovereign, and if so, its rules are law, we could flip it around and say, tell me about the character of the rules. And if they appear to be law, then maybe I think this body is actually a sovereign in a certain sense. Anyway, the important thing from your perspective is not whether Facebook's rules count technically as law under my definition or any other, but that they have the elements of a legal system, which means that you will be expert at navigating them. So after graduating from law school, you could be of enormous value to a firm like Facebook or a nonprofit or literally any place that has rules that are for a community that need to be interpreted and enforced. Thank you so much for your time and good luck. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you can't get enough of Andrew, check out our bar prep course on 7 slash MBE. Andrew teaches our contracts course. And if you're interested in some of the topics that Andrew brought up in this episode, you should check out Arizona Law. They're investing a lot of money in their law and technology programs. Andrew is also the co-director of their tech law program, and he oversees a full-ride scholarship for students with STEM backgrounds. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.